First, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of you who perhaps prayed me through last week so that last week's words were not my last words. I'm sorry to deny you the great story that would have made had they been my last words, but I must confess I'm thankful to be before you once again this morning. Last week's words, however, were my last words in the book of Deuteronomy, at least for a few weeks to come. What? You don't think I want to end Deuteronomy that easy, do you? We're going to have a party when Deuteronomy is over. But in these last few weeks before Easter, we need to prepare our hearts to really celebrate Easter in the best way that we possibly can. That's actually the purpose of Lent. It's a period, a 40-day period of preparation. Just as Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness preparing himself before his public ministry began. And throughout church history, a primary focus of of Lent has been on repentance. That repentance is actually a possibility for us. So you and I will be best prepared to rejoice in Jesus when we are most repentant. And so for that reason, you and I must live our lives as repentant people. And that's what we're going to talk about as we come to the passage for this morning, which is the Gospel of John, chapter 12. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and open them to John, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And once you've found John, chapter 12, I'm going to ask you to stand so we can hear, read together, the word of the living God. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word and your very particular promise that you will bless the reading and the hearing of your word. So we've done both, Lord. We've read your word. Your word has been heard. And now we pray your blessing on us. Through the power of your spirit, make your word bread to feed our souls, to nourish us to embolden us, to empower us, to change us. Oh, that can only happen when it's your truth and your word that does the changing. So Spirit of God, join the truth of the word. Bring change in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So the story before us this morning is a story of repentance and a story of unrepentance. And so before we look at the story in particular, let's make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to repentance and what it means. Repentance is really a response to evidence. You see what you see, you hear what you hear, you touch what you touch, and you believe that it is real. 
and you believe it's true. And so you begin to live your life in the light of the evidence that you believe to be real and true. Here's the theological definition of repentance from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So you see, you've looked at the evidence. You have apprehended, yes, there is a God. You have apprehended that you have sinned before this holy God. And then you've looked at the person of Jesus Christ and you have apprehended because of Jesus Christ, God must be a merciful God. And so you change your life. You turn your life so that you're no longer living for and living in the sin that once brought you so much joy. You turn away from that sin and you turn instead to God with full purpose to live for God and to obey him. That's repentance. And it's something that you and I must do every single day of our lives because every day, as you well know, presents each of us with multiple opportunities to sin, to live our lives for ourselves instead of living our lives for the Lord. So we need to repent. Again, let's hear from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Men and women ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it's every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. I love that. It's our job to repent of our particular sins particularly. That means we name the sin, this is sin, and we turn from it. You can stop repenting when you stop sinning. And so we all know when that is going to be, we'll never stop sinning in this life. Sin will never stop calling to us. Psst, psst, come here. Come this way. Come on, this is the way to go. That's what sin does to us every day. And that way will all not always appear to us to be the bleak, dark, ugly, destructive way that in reality it actually is. If it appeared to be what it really was, we would not be tempted to answer the call, Psst, come this way. Sin holds out the promise of something we want, uh, a pleasure, a feeling, an experience, something, but repentance is denying ourselves that pleasure, that experience, that feeling, because we know that it's not the satisfying thing that it masquerades as or that it purports to be. Proverbs 14, 12 is one of those verses that every believer should memorize. And maybe you have memorized Proverbs 14, 12, but if you haven't, would you please do this? Memorize Proverbs 1412, because you will be able to pull this verse out of your memory bank 
every day of your life. It's invaluable to people who seek to live a life of repentance. And here it is. I'm going to read it. Not that I haven't memorized it, but I've memorized it from the King James with all the F's and all that kind of stuff. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Have you memorized that verse? There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. So it tells us every day, you and me, we cannot trust our instincts. Not when it comes to sin. Our instincts might tell us, oh, this is right. Well, it, it seems right to me. Instead, you and I need to know the end of that way and ask ourselves rather, Jesus, what do you think of this way? What is right to you? Because that way is the way to life. Repentance is realizing that you have believed the lie. What seemed right was not right. And so you turn around, you walk away from it and you walk toward Christ. Now that's repentance. Let's look now at the passage and the verses that we have before us. John has surrounded this very short story that we read by very big stories, very compelling stories that provide the evidence that should lead all of us to repentance. Coming before this smaller story is the big story of Lazarus. And you know that story. Dear, dear friend of Jesus. The friend that Jesus would not rush to when he was sick. Instead, Jesus let his dear friend die. He allowed his friend to be dead four days before he went to see him. And even that was to accommodate the beliefs of the Jews who believed, many of them, that for three days after death, the spirit of the person hovered around the body for three days. And perhaps the spirit would rejoin the body and they wouldn't be dead. But after the third day, a little gross, but when the body begins to decompose, the spirit says, Ugh, and departs forever. And so after three days, there is no hope that that person will ever come back to life. They are not mostly dead. They are really dead. And so Jesus waits the three days and a fourth day. Then he goes to his friend Lazarus. Then he goes to the tomb where Lazarus is buried. And then he commands, roll away the stone. Take it away. And then he commands in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the four-day dead Lazarus comes forth from the grave. Life again. On the other side of the story, the smaller story, is the triumphal entry. This throng of people, this mass of people coming around Jesus, giving him honor, giving him praise, hailing him as the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A crowd so large that it seemed to those who were looking as if the entire world had gone after Jesus. And then more people come around Jesus, not just Jews now, but Greeks as well. They join the crowd. And in the presence of these people, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. That's his prayer. And then a voice from heaven, the voice of God 
answers audibly in a voice that sounds like thunder. I have glorified my name and will glorify it again. So here's the point. The evidence is absolutely compelling. A commanding voice that calls the dead to come back to life. A commanding voice from heaven that audibly answers prayer. So the evidence is this. Life in this person that commands that way, that that prays that way, life in that person is better than life without that person. So how do you respond to the evidence? Well, your options are either to believe the evidence and repent or not believe and not repent. So look in verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came. No matter what their motivation was for coming, these people are moving in the direction of repentance. Coming to Jesus, moving toward Jesus. Look in verse 11. Many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Going over to Jesus. Here again is the direction of repentance, always going to, always moving toward Jesus. Based on the evidence they had seen, they put their faith in him and their lives took on this new direction, a direction of going toward Jesus. And so if you close your eyes and picture the scene, how beautiful it it must have been to see this mass of people going over toward the person of Jesus Christ. It's so beautiful because you and I know what they're going to experience when they come to the Lord. I don't know what about what your opinion of Billy Graham is. It's varied. I don't know what you think about crusades. I don't know what you think about altar calls and people walking the aisle and coming forward and all of that. But I know this, through my lifetime of watching those crusades on television. It is a powerful moment and it is a moving moment when you see hundreds and thousands of people moving forward when Billy Graham says, come to Jesus. It's beautiful. I know what grumpy Presbyterians say. You know, only 10% of those people are going to stick anyway. (laughs) Honestly, If even 10% of thousands sick, it's a good day, right? All those people coming to faith in the Lord, moving toward Jesus, that's the right direction. So that's our story of repentance. Now let's look at the story of unrepentance because sometimes you and I learn more about what not to do by looking at What shouldn't be done? And that's the case before us this morning. Maybe we'll learn more about our own hearts and our own practice of repentance by looking at this story of unrepentance. Look in verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Okay, now we know that's the wrong direction, right? Because their direction leads toward killing and death, and we know that that's the wrong direction. The way of Jesus is the way of life. And this moment is tragic in and of itself, moving toward death. But it's even more tragic when we think about who these men were. Chief priests, who were they supposed to be? So I want us to think for a few moments about these chief priests and remember this principle. 
that we always say here in this place. Whatever God ordains, Satan what? Opposes. Whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. So let's listen to this description of the chief priests. Who they were supposed to be. Who God had ordained them to be. This is from Exodus chapter 29. And it's part of a longer description of ordaining these chief priests. God says, thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons. According to all I've commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And from Numbers chapter 3, God says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. This is what God has ordained. The priests belong to God. They were special to him. They were set apart. The priests had the high calling and the responsibility of representing God to the people and the people to God. The temple, the dwelling place of God on earth, the place sanctified by the glory of God. This place was the complete charge and responsibility of the priests of God. What kind of person do you think God would want a priest to be? Supporting life or taking life? What understanding should they have of themselves? We belong to God. What relationship should they have with God? Well, we know whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. And so it is his goal to make the chief priests everything they are not supposed to be. Psst, come, come this way. Even while the priests are immersed in the things of God, even though the things of God are their very lives, look in verse 11. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Death, murder, killing, as well, in addition to. Who's their other victim? You know this story as well as I do. John tells us back in chapter 11, the chief priests were part of the group who put together a plot to kill Jesus after he had raised Lazarus from the dead. John tells us as well their motivation for wanting to kill Jesus. Look up in chapter 11, verse 48. If we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now listen, because here we're getting to the heart of it now. Not just their heart, 
We're getting to the heart of it for you and me as well. To, to the thing that makes repentance so difficult. Why is it so hard for the chief priests to repent, to turn away from death and to turn toward Jesus, even in light of all the evidence that they should turn around? Well, they have been deceived. And here's the deception. They have been deceived into believing that if they follow Jesus, they will lose something. There's something that they believe is theirs. There's something they delight in and they perceive that if they follow Jesus, these things will be taken away. Listen, this is how Satan opposes what God ordains. Listen, by following Christ, we do not lose. Instead, we gain everything. The Apostle Paul puts it so logically for those who like logic in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things we have in Christ. And so if you perceive, and you may perceive this this morning, if you perceive that in turning away from sin and turning to Christ that you're going to lose something, you are not perceiving reality. But this is always the question. It's always at the crux of the matter for the chief priests and for you and for me as well when it comes to repentance. If I repent, if I turn around, if I go toward Jesus, what will I lose? I don't mean the, the person who's repenting for the very first time coming to faith in Christ. I mean all of us as we live out our faith every day as we face those decisions, will we choose to move toward Christ and follow his commands? Or will we choose to go in the opposite direction, away from Christ and disobey him? The only reason we would do that, the only reason we would go down that other path is if we perceive loss. And we sense that loss when we believe that our lives rightly belong to us. Just like the chief priests said, our place, our nation will be taken away. If by their place, they mean the temple, and that's what they meant, well, I thought that place belonged to God, didn't you? Doesn't he refer to the temple always as my dwelling place, as my house? The temple doesn't belong to them, it belongs to the Lord. Our nation, they say. But doesn't God say in Exodus 19 that although the entire world is his, out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession? The chief priests have inserted the first person possessive pronoun for what should be third person. Our place, 
Our nation should instead be his place and his nation. And listen, that changes everything. It changes everything. Because when you make this switch, you're no longer zealous about yourself and your things. But then you're zealous about the Lord and his things. Then you say, Lord, I don't want to lose this, but not because of me, but because of you. I don't want to lose these things because of you. When you and I make that pronoun change, everything changes for us as well. 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, it's not my life. Lord, it's your life. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, in the very first question, I belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. You and I will never live, never live a life of repentance until we are convinced of this. We are not our own. We belong to the Lord. Our life is his life. We must be zealous to protect not what belongs to us, but rather what belongs to him. And so faith in Christ requires relinquishing what's yours, your will and your way for his will and his way. So what are you afraid to relinquish? To repent and follow Jesus. What loss do you fear? Don't believe the lie. You will not experience loss in following the one who said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Don't believe the lie. You'll lose nothing by repenting and following Christ. And that's what repentance is all about. Turning from selfish ways and following Christ. Christ. The chief priests would not repent. They would not get off of that path on which they had set themselves that led them away from God. They kept walking down it. And look where it led them. Literally to death. They made a plan to kill Lazarus as well. See, on one hand, you could make a case for them wanting to kill Jesus, right? Because Jesus went around saying he was the son of God. Jesus went around forgiving people of their sins. And so you can say, well, the chief priests were trying to protect the people from the charlatans. So of course they want to kill Jesus, right? But Lazarus, please tell me what crime Lazarus committed that the chief priests would want to take the life of this man made in the image of God. What accusation could they make about, uh, against him? Well, Lazarus, now you were dead. 
you were resting in your grave and Jesus called you to come to life and you obeyed him. You came out of that grave and for that, sorry, we must kill you. What, what else had Lazarus done? How desperate these men were to protect their way and allow it, allow it to, to slip away from them. How deluded they were into believing that they could ever stop or destroy the good work of God in the first place. Look, they wanted to kill Lazarus because he was living, walking around proof that Jesus could raise the dead. So even if they did kill him, hello, what could Jesus do? Lazarus, come forth again. Seems they would only be exacerbating their problem by killing Lazarus. But listen, that's how stupid sin makes you. Can we say this together? Sin makes you stupid. Let's say that out loud so we all hear it. Sin makes you stupid. That was very hearty. So that means you believe it. Because it's true, sin makes you stupid. We are unwise to think that what we see here in the chief priests is not in us. In light of what we know, we must be wise. Here's a t- I'm almost done, sort of. <laughs> Here's a text I received this week. It's my new favorite, my new favorite phrase. It, it, it's really good. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. <laughs> Isn't that great? Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. So let's be wise about what we know, all right? We know the power of sin. We know the power of pride. We know the pull of self-satisfaction. Don't we know that to be true in our lives? We know that sin makes us stupid. So let's be wise about how we live our lives. Let's watch how we live our lives. Let's not be focused on the splinter in the eye of these chief priests as if we are some completely different species. Let's be wise about how we live. The chief priest reminds us of this. A life surrounded by the things of God, touching the things of God, talking about the things of God, being surrounded by the people of God does not necessarily give you a heart for God. These men were immersed in the things of God every day of their life, and yet you see them here opposing, fighting against the one they serve. The job of these chief priests was by the Lord's command. Look, keep bread on the table in the temple every day. Fresh bread, keep it there. That was their job, baking the bread, handling the bread, but they would not repent before the one who said, I am the bread of life. Their job was to keep the lights burning in the temple right beside where the bread was. Never let the lights go out, yet they would not repent before the one who said, I am the light of the world. The chief priests every day of their lives made sacrifices for the people, but they would not repent before the one at whom John pointed and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One day a year, the high priest goes behind that veil in the temple into the Holy of Holies. One day a year, the most special day of the year. But they would not repent before the one who from the cross said, it is finished. And in that very moment, that very veil tore in two from top to bottom, opening 
the way to God, they would not repent before him. They handled the things of God. They touched them, the things that pointed to Christ, and yet they would not repent. They would not turn to him. They would not give up what they rightly, wrongly perceived was to be of greater value than Jesus. And so what about you and me? We are surrounded by the things of God. Look what we hold in our hand. You have it right now in your hand or on your phone, whatever it is, the word of God, the things of God. Many of you read it every single day of your lives. We come in this place and we worship so freely and so beautifully. We're surrounded by one another. We're surrounded by the people of God. But are we repentant? How easily do we turn around, turn away from sin, and run toward Jesus? Repentance, it is a difficult step to take. The hardest step of all. Because we are graspers. Because we have not the imagination for what could be if we would turn away from what we perceive as so compelling and alluring and turn to Christ. What are we trying to protect that keeps us from repenting? What would God do? What could God do with a repentant you? We don't have the imagination to know that the things of God would satisfy us on a much deeper level than the things after which we're grasping. But the Lord knows how satisfying those things are. And so he says, repent and follow me. Will you? And now I'm really done with this. Our repentance, yours and mine, is truly what makes the gospel so compelling and so attractive to those people in our lives. People around you, they're going to be tempted to follow Jesus when they see you turn. When they see you turn away from self-love in order to love others as Jesus has told us to love. People will be tempted to turn and follow Jesus when they see you turn. Turn away from serving yourself to serve others as Jesus has commanded us to serve them. People in your life will be tempted to follow Jesus when they see you turn. When they see you turn away from the best and first seat in order to take the lowest and the last seat. And you turn all because of Jesus. How attractive Jesus can be through us. John tells us here, many were going away and believing in Jesus. Where are people in our lives going? It seems in our culture today, they're not going toward Jesus. They're going away from him. But why should that be? When they see evidence of repentance in our lives, if you and I will repent authentically and often, really turning away from sin and turning to Christ, truly following hard after him, endeavoring to live a life of obedience to him, seeing our joy in being received with open arms, forgiving arms by the one to whom we run. When people see that, 
some may want to follow Jesus. May it be that because you and I are repentant people, many will be going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and the truth that it teaches to us. And and Father, we would simply ask that you would make us repentant people. So Spirit of God, we ask that you would show us the evidence. It's, It's plain, it's clear before us. And help us to respond to the evidence we see, the person of Christ, the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Father, help us to see that evidence and respond to it in faith and then know that we have to live our lives in light of that evidence. That we would want to turn away from anything, Lord, that leads us away from Jesus. Turn us so that we are always, ever, going toward him. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.